It is so important to hear from law enforcement that have solved cold cases, especially if you've got a case that didn't have any DNA from a suspect, no suspect fingerprints, and no murder weapon. Having the opportunity to sit and listen to a detective, chief of police, or prosecutor is a gift. What Clay Bryant gives us today is better than a police academy training. You are straight up in the front seat of his patrol car, and he's given you the best advice he can after decades and decades and decades of being a law enforcement officer, being a detective, being a chief of police. And I want everybody to understand how important today is. It's not an active cold case, but this is a training day. This is the essence of what Zone 7 is. This is somebody that I trust to have my back, to tell me the truth, to help me in any situation that I find myself in, good or bad. Clay Bryant is going to be with you tonight and next week, and he's going to tell you how he solved a cold case with no DNA, no murder weapon, no eyewitness, no fingerprints, nothing. So you can take what he's telling you and make it applicable to your case and say, you know what? I might have one partial print, but I'm going to go back and talk to this person. And then I'm going to go to the mechanic that she went to a week before. Nobody's ever talked to him. And it could be the difference in breaking your case wide open or it's still sitting on the shelf. He is literally giving you his playbook. In the South, the Sunday drive, or any driving trip, serves as a way for the family members to catch up, entertain each other, and spend some captive hours bonded. I loved getting there as much as our final destination. When I was younger, the seven of us piling into one car, laughing, singing, playing road games, was some of my favorite memories. But the best time on those road trips were after dark, when the Atlanta radio station would fade out of range and the car would get real quiet, and my mom would take that opportunity with her slow southern drawl to say, you know what this road reminds me of? And the five of us didn't even need to answer her, and she would go right on, and she would say, it was a night just like this one. We would hang on every word she said. Those long car trips, she would tell us fantastic stories of Bonnie and Clyde crisscrossing the plains or the back roads of Jekyll Island where she would point out to the Atlantic with the moonlight just hitting the ocean to show us where Blackbeard anchored his ship. Or she might even tell us one of the colorful stories of our own Uncle Clark like the time he brought her diamond earrings when she was only six years old and told her he won them gambling. But her mother always thought he took them from some poor widow. <laughs> that front seat was a place we learned family history, heroic and unfortunate, a place we visited uninterrupted with each other. And sometimes those stories were to entertain us or to teach us some life lesson. 
And if you were lucky like me, those stories helped shape who you would become. Tonight, you get to meet a man that learned who he was, not just in the front seat of a car, but in the front seat of his daddy's patrol car. Clay Bryant was raised by a legendary lawman, Chief of Police Buddy Bryant. Clay Bryant has been a lawman his whole life, definitely one of the white hats. Now, I've spent some time with Clay Bryant on the front seat of a car or two. He's Mayberry with enough horse sense to fill a room, and he's got a fearless, natural presence. He can talk to anybody, and he ain't afraid of nothing. We have theorized and worked on cases from the Dixie Mafia to missing persons to homegrown killers. He is my mentor, and he is my friend. He knew exactly what he wanted to be, a police officer. And a hot August morning in 1970 would serve as a defining moment for him. The crackling, grainy sound of that old police radio alerted Chief Bryant that a woman had been found in a well. Chief Bryant looked at his son, Clay, and said, Let's go. Cold Case Clay, as he's known, is here with us tonight. Chief, welcome to Zone 7 Legend Series. Thank you so much, Cheryl. I appreciate the opportunity to come be with you tonight. I am thrilled to have you here. You know good and well I can hear your stories and listen to you talk all night long. So let's go right to Hogansville, 1960, where I know your daddy gave you some advice because you gave it to me. He told you even the worst people have some good in them. And the best people have some bad in them. Clay, tell us about your daddy. Oh, he was, <laughs> I guess the best way to say he was a hell of a fella. And probably the best criminal investigator that I've ever known, simply because he knew people, you know. And what he said about that, the good and the worst of people and the bad and the best of people is true. You have to take people for what and who they are. I've been helped by some of the best folks in the world, and I've been helped by some of the people that, a lot of people would consider the worst folks in the world. But, you know, everybody is of their own. And uh, that's one thing he taught me. He said, you know, uh, you take people for who they are and do the best you can with what they are to you. And that's what I've always tried to do. <laughs> he was somewhat of a sage. He, he had told me, you know, my dad always, he wanted me to go to law school. And up until 1980, he actually paid me to get a law degree. But he always, uh, he knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a police officer. He told me one time, he said, son, he said, if you're bound and determined to do this, he said, you are going to be a police officer. He said, well, let me tell you. He said, the world is full of police officers. For God's sakes, try to be a peace officer. And that kind of stuck with me, you know. He's right. The world's full of policemen. And there seems to be less and less peace officers. And I hope when the time comes that I'm remembered, that's what I'm remembered as. I love that. I love everything about it. And I can tell you, there is no doubt that's how you're going to be remembered. So right out of high school, you joined the state patrol. I did. Uh, 1973, I graduated high school on the, uh, I think, May the 30th. And I had a place at the State Patrol radio operator in 1973, two days after I got out of high school. 
and I stayed there for until I turned 21. And when I turned 21, I was promoted to trooper. And for a while, I was the youngest trooper in the state and had had a good career with patrol, enjoyed it. Uh, and then in 1980, very unexpectedly, my dad passed away, had a heart attack and died at the ripe old age of 46. When that happened, shortly thereafter, they offered me his job. Whether it be for the right or the wrong reasons, I took it. I know one thing, <laughs> I didn't take it for the retirement because <laughs> I was under the old state system. I'd have been, I'd have been much better off. <laughs> but anyway, I took the job and I never regretted it. Uh, it was, you know, hometown guy. And it, Kind of hard to follow in the footsteps of your father, you know. But we did our best. We uh, we did did a lot of good, and I stayed there for about twelve years. Small town politics, you know how that goes. You get to where you <laughs> get to places you'd rather be. <laughs> sugar, and, that's a whole nother podcast, sugar. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I uh, went to private sector and I started me a, a commercial tire business and. Did it for a little while, and then I was uh, in, I guess it was 2002, job came open with the district attorney's office as an investigator for Pete Scandalax in the Calia circuit, and uh, I'd called him, and he said, sure, if you, you know, I've known Pete a long time, and he said, if you're uh, interested, I'd give us an application. I'd like, very much like to hire you, and he did, and that was the beginning of the road that we traveled, you know. I've got a whole lot of respect for Pete, and I think the two of y'all, I mean, that's a that's a formidable group right there, buddy. So let me ask you something. It's your dad's birthday, and you get some kind of facts, right? I don't know whether you can say, you call it divine intervention. I, that's what I think it is, or, or the luck of the draw or what. But my dad had a tremendous interest in that old case. Uh in 1970, Wendell Moore was found on the morning of August the 3rd in a well adjacent to the house that she lived in. Of course, she was at the bottom of it. was a dry well, and she was down in the bottom. She was deceased. And there were always uh, a lot of talk about what went on in the Moore household, you know, in the neighborhood and whatnot. And uh, my dad, it was just absolutely obvious that she had suffered uh, tremendous beating when she was lifted out of the well and on the cable of a wrecker, actually. It was not a pretty sight. And here's the thing that I want people to absolutely remember. You were standing there as a teenager. Absolutely. And, and my dad and I were at the police department and, and what had happened, the sheriff's office called and they wanted him to go out and take some pictures. The incident was literally a stone's throw. It wasn't 50 yards from the city limits but it was outside of his jurisdiction. And everybody in that part of the country knew that the husband had something to do with this. And even the autopsy report by Dr. Joseph Krafka, he was he was a very straightforward, straight-up guy. He had, you know, usually on a death certificate, that it's a very mundane Thing. It doesn't describe a lot of peculiarities. He made that death certificate as specific as he possibly could have to let someone know that this was a homicide. And he marked homicide on the death certificate. But the old days politics got involved and the coroner came up with it was an accident. And, uh, but Dr. Krafka had to 
you know, he mentioned petechiae, you know, and oh, the things yeah. that would indicate that, you know, it was. She was strangled. She was strangled. And uh, the autopsy they did back at that time was old hospital autopsy. Just from, they didn't completely do the forensic autopsies that they do today. It was just basically from the neck down. And uh, it was more of a post-mortem examination than it was anything. But he described uh, some brutality that went on that had been documented a few days before and that type of thing. And it was just uh, absolutely horrific what the woman had suffered. But how brilliant was that of Dr. Krafka that he's going to lay it out like that in the death certificate? Well, it, it was... It was the right thing to do, and he did he did his job, and he did it well. And uh, the only problem was that some old-time politics got involved. Back in that day, there was a lot of that. And uh, my dad was just absolutely mortified by it. Every time you see her husband, his name was Marshall Moore, in town, he'd say he ought to be on death row in Tattanoa County. And... Uh, you know, my dad passed away, and it, that's, this was in 1970. Dad passed away in 80. But, you know, it, that case never left him. He, you know, he, he was just, this thing, you just don't mistreat people like that. And later on, as I investigated the case, this was the longest standing case of spousal abuse that I've ever seen. It went on for years, even to the point beating her till she lost a child. And that child buried in Sweetwater Cemetery in Paulding County. I, I went up there and saw the grave myself. But the long and the short of it was, was kind of got swept under the rug and nothing came of it. So I'd been to, I went to work for Pete Scandalakis in uh, October of the 15th of 2002. It was a new job and I was enjoying myself, you know, in the role, and my dad and I, we were so close. We fished, we hunted, and, you know, he was my best friend, and I, I was his. And uh, very few, you know, Father's Days, birthdays, things like that, and they just, you know, they weighed heavily on my mind. But just, I had this new thing going on, and I could not, uh, you know, I, I forgot my dad's birthday. On October the 24th, I get a call from the sheriff's office, and they say, uh, Clay said, do you remember back in the day up in Hogansville, right outside of Hogansville, a lady was found in a well on the Mobley Bridge Road. And I said, not only do I remember it, I was standing there when they got her out of the well. And uh, Larry Arrington was the investigator with the sheriff's office. He said, Clay, we, uh, young ladies came in here and had a death certificate marked homicide. And he said, we don't even have... The record of it was like it never existed. I said, well, it existed because I was there. He said, I'm going to send her over to you. He said, I'm going to send you a copy of this death certificate. I'm going to fax it over to you, and I'm going to send uh, the young lady over there. See if you can help her find some resolution to what she was trying to find out about her aunt, and that was Gwendolyn Moore. Mm. <laughs> and uh, he faxes a thing to me, and I have not thought about my dad's birthday to that minute. I look at the top on the fax line, the origin, and it says October the 24th. This came to me on my dad's birthday. And it was just, it was so sobering to me. It's just like he said, you know, try to make this right, son. Well, that's a sign to me, and no doubt about it. 
and I'll be honest with you, there have been things, and I had a lot of luck in solving these some several old cases. And uh, it always seemed like when I'd get to an impasse at a place where, you know, where are you going to turn now? It was just like a guiding hand was on my shoulder and pointed me in the right direction. You know, you, you know, for you, you can think what you want. Uh, I always think it was my daddy's guiding hand. But uh, there's a, like there's just some things I can't can't explain about some other cases. It had to be divine intervention. That's the only thing it could be, to my satisfaction, anyway. A legend in the state of Georgia, Chief Buddy Bryant. After he was honorably discharged from the Air Force, he went to work in Coyote County, Georgia, and he started his career with Chief Lamar Potts. Now, you may know that name because he was involved with the famous movie and books, Murder in Coyote County. If you're not familiar with it, one of the richest men in Meriwether County had somebody working for him that was running some shine. He didn't like it. Short version, he pistol-whipped him, and the man died. The wealthy landowner, I believe, is one of the wealthiest men that ever received the death penalty. And that death penalty was carried out, and he had two witnesses that testified against him, both African-American. So it's a real famous case. But Chief Bryant was an unusual small-town police chief. He believed in educating himself. He believed in training himself. He was an FBI-trained fingerprint expert. He attended the Southern Police Institute in Louisville, Kentucky. Those were rare things that he attained that, again, unheard of. He was also an EMT, because back in the day, when he started in the 60s, the ambulances ran out of the police department. So he made sure... If anybody needed him on any level, he was able to get out there and help them. So when Clay talks about his daddy, that's who he's talking about. A well-trained, well-educated, devoted chief of police. I remember what you told me about this case. You said this needs to be made right. Well, it was. This, this, this was probably one of the most long-standing cases of brutality that I've had ever seen. But I did know that we were fixing to open up some, you know, this guy had remarried and had another child. And, and when, he, when he killed Gwendolyn, she and he had four children together. And the oldest boy was named Alan. And he and I were, were in school together. At this time, we were, I guess, eighth or ninth grade, I guess. Alan was one year younger than I, but I knew him. He knew him well. You know, it's Hogan from Georgia. You know everybody. I kind of lost touch with Alan, didn't know anything about it. But when this came up, I said, well, well, the first thing I need to do is to contact somebody in the family. And uh, I was able to find out that Alan, his daddy didn't spare his children either from his brutality. And, and I found out as I investigated the case and talked to family members on both sides of the family that he, his life prior to going to Atlanta, was he was up in the North Georgia mountains, and his family came from a legacy of family brutality. Matter of fact, Marshall's sister 
told me that their grandfather beat their grandmother to death and burned her on a pyre in Raven County in, back in the 30s. You can't even imagine, you know, living through, with and anything like that. But uh, long and short of it was that I called Alan. And Alan had actually a situation that happened at the house. He, he father was beating him. They called, the neighbors called the sheriff's office. And the deputies told him, says, well, son, if you don't like where you're at, you can leave. And at the ripe old age of 14, he took off walking and he walked to LaGrange, about 15 miles. And his aunt seen, took him in. And he told a lie about his age and went to work in the Dixie Cotton Mill. He also got him a GED. And as quick as he was able, when he turned 17, Aunt Singh, who had made herself his guardian, signed for him to go in the Navy. And he had a, a career from the Navy, retired there. And he was an electronics technician. And he had uh, gotten a job with uh, Cornell Corrections. And they ran the D. Ray James prison down in South Georgia. And that's where I found him. I called him that morning and I said, Alan, do you remember me? He said, yes, Clay, I do. And I told him what I wanted to do. I said, I think the case needs to be open. And, it, and you know, you could tell he was broken up about it. And I said, you know, we need to talk about this in person, though. This is an important, you know, it's a decision you need to talk over with some of your relatives and whatnot. I said, because it's going to affect a lot of people. And he said, well, I can tell you this. The main thing is I'd like to see some justice received for my mama. He said, I'll never forget in my life crawling under the house, next door neighbor's house the night that she was killed and seeing what he had done to her. And you know what, Clay, that's the thing that pops into my mind every time I think about this case, is this woman, her go-to was to run and hide under the neighbor's house because he wouldn't look for her there. And then the children all knew it. And that's where Alan goes to comfort her and check on her and tries to get her to run away with him. He said, he told me, you know, I actually got him to meet me on I-75 uh, down around Court Hill. So I can't remember which exactly where, but it was down around Court Hill. And it was cold in, in November then. And uh, he sat there and, and through the tears, you know, he told me, about what he saw that night and what had been happening, things that happened in the past. And, you know, things he said, you know, I've been beat with everything from shoes to sticks and wrenches. <laughs> Just things you, we can't even imagine. And he said, and he said, I, he said to my mama, he said, when he'd get in a rage with us, he said, my mama would step in and she said, she, he said, I don't know how many beatings this ain't her take for us kids, you know. Here I am raised by loving parents, you know, and, it's just the trauma of what he lived through. I don't see, you know, I don't see how he made a lie for himself like he did, but but he was successful. Anyway, he talked with several of his relatives and the young lady that uh, found a death certificate. She found a death certificate while she was cleaning out the effects of the grandmother who had passed away. And she ran across this death certificate and it looked at it and marked homicide. She never even had heard of Gwendolyn, who would have, who would have, her aunt. And she 
asked folks in the family, and they said, you know, yes, and she lived a brutal existence, and she tried to get away a time or two, but he'd always go and get her and bring her back and threaten the children if she didn't come back, and she lived under that duress, you know, for years. Again, it was just, I, I can't even imagine the information that came forth from members of the family of what she withstood over the years. And, you know, that's another thing. When you look at any investigation you're doing and you start to list the suspects, there's only one here. The thing about her social circle, you know, the neighbors and her friends and extended family, they all knew. Oh, they, they watched it. They called, they called law enforcement on many occasions. And nothing was ever done. He had, he had found some friendship with some folks in, in the area down there. That uh, there's only there's only one one way to explain it. It was the, the graft of the situation, you know. And you got to pass. You got to pass till two thousand and two. So I want you to tell us how you started connecting those dots for a prosecution. The sad truth is, you know, I I like to claim a lot of responsibility for being somewhat of a genius, but. It's just not true. <laughs> this this case was an absolute, you know, when a 12-year-old boy sits down in front of you and says, my daddy killed my mama, and if he knows I'm talking to you, he will kill me too. That, and that he had found her that night, and her eyes were swollen, beaten, swollen shut, and all that just goes out the window. When I actually found the, the the case file, you know, back in the old days, if a sheriff and the GBI, not it then, wasn't what it is today in the elite, you know, law enforcement entity. It was, you know, each patrol post had a GBI agent. It was an old state trooper. And, and the exact words, I think, was they worked at the pleasure of the sheriff. Anytime there was a case where something that was... The sheriff would see being as a political liability to him. He'd throw that liability on the GBI. He'd control the outcome, and he wouldn't have to suffer the consequences of it. But, you know, the neighbors had all seen this going on. All of them knew what had happened. The Turners had hidden her under their house a number of times when she'd be running away and had been beaten. And it just went on and on. And. As far as the dots to connect, the main thing that we had to have, I went back and re-interviewed witnesses and the people that the night that this happened, and they came forth with very good and solid testimony of what, what they had seen take place during that night, not just what was found under the house when she was under the house before she had uh, undoubtedly came out from under the house or was taken out from under the house by Marshall. But what led up to her being under there, the beating that she suffered next door neighbor had stood there. And, you know, these are uh, back in the old days, we call them shotgun houses. They were, you know, yep. straight up houses in 1970. Wasn't no air conditioning and none of these things. They had the windowsills up. He stood on the porch and, and watched her take a tremendous beating from him. And then he said, you know, and, 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 and it was a line that he said, I will, it, it will stick to me to the day I die. Guy's name was Ronnie Turner. Me and Ronnie were about the same age, and he and Allen and they put, you know, the families when they could, they played together. He said, you know, and he called me Chief. He said, Chief, so I'm just, I'm just going to tell you. He described exactly what she had on. He described the beating. He described 
her crawling up the bedpost. And I, I looked at him and I said, Ronnie, how in the world can you remember the detail of this so vividly? This happened 33 years ago and you saw it one time. And his answer to me was, and Ronnie was not a super educated guy. He looked me in the eye and said, no, chief, I've saw this every day for 33 years. Oh, man. Mm. How powerful a statement, you know. That is a powerful statement. We decided with what we had, and we had uh, members of the Turner family next door that hit her under the house that night. Ronnie's statement and his mother's statement to where, uh, from what they had seen. But we didn't have a cause of death. The, the coroner has got, got it ruled as, as an accidental death. But now we have this death certificate from Dr. Krafka, who had long since passed away. I contacted GBI and say, look, you know, Pete, Pete says, Clay, we got to have a cause of death because we, if we don't, we ain't going to get off first base, you know. I contacted Chris Perry. He was director of the crime lab at the time. Chris said, yeah, Clay, I'll be glad to. If you want, if you'll get her exhumed, we'll do another autopsy. And he said, but, you know, it's going to be, she'd been down 33 years. Didn't give you a whole lot of hope about it. But I, I always felt, you know, I, I knew Dr. Sperry, and he was pretty much a world-renowned pathologist, criminal pathologist. So I contacted Alan, and he talked with his aunt, Pat, and uh, the family, you know. And we had a meeting with uh victim's advocate, myself, Pete, and them. And to a person, they said, look, Justice has been withheld from Gwendolyn for over 30 years, and we would like for the truth to be told. We explained to them, you know, the chances of this going falling on its face were as good as it really doing any good, because we didn't know what we were going to find. They all went forward. We got uh, the judge to sign an exhumation for us, and we exhumed her body and took it to the crime lab. And then we'll forget Linda Caldwell, who was one of my favorite folks. She was a prosecutor in the office there. Mm-hmm. And she had, I was working the case with, with her. You know, she was my go-to. Yeah, I adore Linda. And she told me, she, she had gotten so involved in the case. And we went up together. After the exhumation, we followed the, the truck, the coffin was on up to the crime lab and we sat there and they opened the coffin and the skeletal remains were intact. I mean, they were, you know, anatomically correct, but it like all graves in Clip Cemetery, I didn't realize this. The bones were just ebony, shining black. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is the tannic acid in the grass clippings leached down into the ground and, you know, and coffins and, Concrete vaults, they just fill up with water. When you open one, generally the coffins float. That water is black. And it had actually dyed her skeletal remains just as, as shiny jet black as you could ever imagine. And I'd never seen that before. Dr. Sperry explained that process to us, you know. Of course, the coffin itself was... You know, the only things that were still intact, the top of everything was made from silk. She had on a pair of, of stockings, and it, it kept her uh, 
leg bones, everything together, and everything else is just during the process of decomposition, it's laid where it was in the coffin. But it was full of sludge and mud, you know, and Sperry would take out a piece. He was building her back on a gurney next to her coffin. He looked at the skull. We thought, what we thought was that you're going to find a skull fracture. And she probably died of a closed head, head injury. Well, he picked the skull up and he washed it and he looked around, looked in it just as close and examined it, you know, with a micro, not with a microscope, with a magnifying glass. Linda and I were sitting there. He said, so far I don't see anything that I can definitively say is a cause of death. Linda and I were sitting against the wall with tears running out of our eyes because we thought we had, you know, we'd come this far and all of a sudden we'd come to the end of the road. We're sitting there and we're discussing what not to do and all the pain that we don't cause all these folks and to relive this thing. And Dr. Sperry is taking her out piece by piece, the cervical spine and as he's building along. And he got down into the lower part of her neck. And all of a sudden he says, huh, this is kind of provocative. And he looked over at us and said, it's not provocative. This is murder. And her highway bone was fractured bilaterally, just as textbook if you had taken both your thumbs and cracked it off both sides. Mm. He said, manual strangulation, it goes right dead along with this death certificate for the petechial hemorrhages, uh, the things that were found. And lo and behold, we had our case. There you go. And we were able to arrest him. But now, the only problem with the case was he was in the later stages of his life. He developed throat cancer. And through legal maneuvering, and it, it, it put it off for like a year and a half. Finally, it came a time he was supposed to have some surgeries and some medical procedures. And under the guise that he was going to have many didn't. And Judge Allen Keeble said, we're going to try him if we try him in the, on a bed here in the courtroom. So uh, shortly before our next court date, He'd re-entered the hospital. One of the nurses up there had told me that he just he, he quit having any intake and other than face the music. He decided he'd go away, and he did. About the time that we should have been trying him, he passed away. But for the last year and a half of his life, he knew what he'd done had been exposed. The family got to say, you know, somebody stood, stood up for Gwendolyn. That was one of the proudest times of my life, was knowing that we had done all we could to right what I saw as being one of the most tragic wrongs that I'd ever witnessed in my lifetime. Never been any prouder of anything. And I'd sit down at night when we were working on the case. It was kind of crazy. I'd sit down. and I couldn't sleep. It'd be on my mind. I started writing. I wrote Gwendolyn's story. Kept it on a shelf for 20 years, never did anything with it. Went to a dove shoot, of all things. A friend of mine, Dr. John Williams, he's a creative writing guy at LaGrange College. We were sitting there talking, and I done got about three deep in a six-pack of Coors Light. And he, <laughs> he said, and he was talking, he's been published several times, and he puts on workshops 
of how to get books published. And he was talking about a book that he had, had just had published about the Atlanta jazz culture. And I was laughing. I said, well, Doc, hell, I wrote a book. And he laughed. He said, well, I'd like to read it, Clay. About a week later, I took him it's just in a notebook, the book that I'd written about Gwendolyn. About a week later, he called me. He said, Clay, he said, have you ever tried to get this published? I said, no, Doc, I never have. I said, I don't know anything about it. He said, well, I do. He said, this this will publish. Of course, I was, you know, it'd been sitting on the, <laughs> on the shelf for 20 years. I had let several people read it, and they didn't know any more about it than I did. And uh, he said, did you, would you mind if I submit it? I said, but, uh, you know, it, I didn't even really had it professionally edited or anything. He said, Clay, it really doesn't need any. Which I was shocked to hear that, you know. You were talking about <laughs> an old country policeman, you know. He sent it off, and a couple of weeks later, a guy from the history press called me and said, hey, we want to publish your book. My first question was, how much does that cost me, you know? <laughs> and he said, no, son, we'll actually pay you. <laughs> so the rest is history. And it's a great book. Solving the West Georgia Murder of Gwendolyn Moore, Cry from the Well. Cry from the Well. And I think every investigator in the country should read it. I have tremendous respect for all the technology that has advanced, you know, forensics over the past several years, especially the last probably 25, 30 years sure. with DNA and those things. Great, you know, great things. And uh, But there's still room for sitting down and talking to somebody. You know, in an old case, people's thoughts and their values change. People that were scared 30 years ago might not be scared today. And I found that in several of the cases that I had that I had worked on, where people came forward and said, yeah, I, I knew this, and this is what took place. It's led to several convictions for me, and God, I thank them for what they did and the courage they had to tell the stories. And they would just had a, a really good run, and I'm so appreciative to everybody that came forth and helped to tell the truth and help tell the story of Gwendolyn Moore. It was a like I said, one of the highlights, surely that the highlight of my professional career at the time and and still is today. It got me started and led to some others and you know, I appreciate the opportunity to work with the wonderful people that I did and Pete and people like Linda and uh it was just a good time. I will say this though. During my time of working with these old cases, there some law enforcement agencies, especially if folks are tied to politics, they are so territorial. A lot of them don't like the fact that you come back behind them and check their work. Even folks that I consider my friend, I lost a couple of guys that I considered friends. Never after some, a couple of these cases, never spoke to me again. <laughs> totally, I'll never understand it. You know, that is what it is. Chief, I appreciate you. I appreciate all your advice through the years, and I appreciate your friendship. And I just want to say, I think tonight you taking us for a ride in the front seat of your patrol car has just been remarkable. Let me tell you, it was a good ride. We was talking about my dad earlier. I know if we, one thing he told me is one of those things you throw in there. You know, uh, he was riding with me one night when I was on the state patrol, probably in the late 70s. We were riding along. We were talking about, uh, a couple of things, you know, I, I bring this up. He says, you know, son, he said the downfall of policing 
was the day they put an air conditioner in the patrol car. I looked at him and I said, Daddy, you've lost your mind. What are you talking about? He said, son, that day it became comfortable to isolate yourself from the people that you need most to be in contact with and to serve. How profound is that? That is profound. And it's true. I, I was told years and years ago when I was in my early 20s, I guess, to always keep the window rolled down, no matter how hot or cold it was, for that same purpose. So people could speak to you and you could speak to them. you got to be part of the community. And police, and I, I don't know if it's because of population or the way we've done things, so, but we've gotten a way of being having that officer that is part of the community, that people trust, that people talk to. And a lot of it's because we isolated ourselves from them. And, and we, at times, have created the impression of it's us against them. And when it should be the total opposite, it should be us, you know? Amen. Amen. I'm going to end this episode like I always do with a quote from somebody that's in my zone seven or that I respect. Tonight, that quote comes from Jim Clemente, retired FBI agent and profiler. Jim says, when you enter a crime scene, don't focus on things. Take in the whole location. Sit there. Smell, taste the air. Then let your subconscious do the math and go with your gut feeling. I'm Cheryl McCollum, and this is Zone 7. <laughs>